0: Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today's episode is with Pete Flint, general partner in NFX, a firm focused on startups that utilize network effects for growth. Pete brings a long history of operating experience, having started real estate startup truly in 2014, which he took public in 2012 and ultimately sold to Zillow in 2015. This was a really fun discussion for me as NFX fits well into the retooling of the venture landscape, and in particular, firms that are finding new and interesting ways of driving great outcomes for founders. On today's episode, we discuss Pete's decision model to join NFX, why they want to build NFX as a platform and a company versus just an investment manager, and how they think about network effects as a competitive moat for both companies and venture firms. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Pete, uh, so great to have you on the show here. Thanks, Samir. Very good to be here as well. So let's start from the beginning. You have been a longtime operator and you you started companies back in the late 90s, ultimately started Trulia in 2005, which turned out to be nearly an 11-year journey, which went through a recession, ultimately going public in 2012, and then selling to Zillow in 2015. And then you went into VC. What catalyzed your journey into becoming a full-time
1: investor and what did you see in nfx that made you want to join them i got involved in the internet in the uk pretty early on and you know where i think there really wasn't a venture ecosystem you know i was part of the team at, that started lastminute.com in the uk which is a really I- iconic business a sort of online travel company sort of Expedia, booking or com type business in 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 the UK, and you know, it's 24 year old, presenting to the board and like, who are these people? They they seem to have really interesting jobs. You know, they're the kind of like, you know, the ultimate kind of bosses. And and I was sort of in, and I touched at the back of my head and kind of intrigued by it. Then I went to Stanford grad school, business school, for, for a couple of years. And I took a job as a summer MBA uh, associate at Battery Ventures. Really, because I was like, okay, this is kind of, in, I you know, let's kind of pull this thread. These venture investors, what do they do? And so, and I wasn't really sure when to do it, but I just felt as an entrepreneur, you know, I could either become an investor or if I wanted to become an entrepreneur, I would be a smarter entrepreneur um, because of it. So I spent the summer at Battery Ventures. Um, and sort of sort of surprisingly, at the same time I came up with the idea for Trulia. And I guess two things. One is I figured out that I didn't want to be a venture investor at that age, but I did want to kind of start this thing trulia. And you know, that was a 10-year journey from there. And then and then after the 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 merger with Zillow, I sort of gave myself a year off. I said, Okay, I 10 year journey, let's kind of recharge. And I and I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I kind of I, I obviously was two paths really starting a business or or going into some sort of venture and I you know spent that year I I had just a newborn kid at the time so you know unlike most people that exit their business which are kind of surfing in Bali or something I was changing diapers and and doing the school run and stuff so really spent that time just advising and investing and then at that point I you know I got a bunch of connections to people at different venture firms and decided that um the right path forward was was NFX
0: given the track record of being a great operator and spending a little bit of time at battery but also during that time at operator i know you had some great investors on board i would presume that you had no shortage of options in venture funds that wanted to bring you on as partner why did you decide to start with a small at that time i guess fledgling shop you know instead of going with one of the bigger firms
1: one was the the people you know, the time is really just James Currier and Gigi Levoy Weiss. We're different, but we're all cut from the same cloth in that we've spent our careers founding technology businesses, running technology businesses, and investing and, and advising technology businesses. And and you know, we span a whole different kind of range of of industries, but just a passion for entrepreneurship, a passion for founding businesses, a really you know, see this as a kind of lifelong pursuit and, and just being really good people through that journey. The other piece is just the, the excitement about working at the earliest stage, you know, really at the cold face, at the, you know, the product market fit or pre-product market fit. You know, we see, I see a lot of operators that go in the later stages and that, that's great, but really felt that the, the real magic and the hardest phase often is that that product market fits phase, the earlier stage. And that was just, you know, we felt that was just a true passion and something we could uniquely bring. But also underserved within the market uh, as well. And then the third thing, we're builders as well. We're, we're builders, we've we founded companies and you know NFX was really a, it was a sort of boutique accelerator at the time. And we kind of spent a lot of time together sh- sharing a vision of what we want to build. And we we want to build a really big franchise in this in this industry in this uh, in this ecosystem. And so the ambition to build and scale, and as a founder myself, I I kind of feel that that is just making investment decisions is, is wonderful, obviously. But it actually building a firm is where we really think about it a lot as well, and and that that was attraction as well for sure. Yeah, and and I do want to pull that thread
0: a little bit more later of building a firm as a company, and and I've taking a look at the team construct. And it's very, very much resembles what I would look at as a company versus a traditional venture firm. But before we go there, I want to think about the partnership that you mentioned with yourself, starting with James and Gigi, and having these deep operational networks and DNA of building companies. You know, I often have these conversations with LPs and other funds. And today we see the vast majority of funds that are started or partners that are brought on big firms, having some level of operating experience. But the one thing I've always wondered is, as an operator turned VC, what are the considerations or things that you need to think about in terms of not letting your own biases as an entrepreneur pollute your thinking or create too much bias in how you help entrepreneurs? And how do you really get the best out of those experiences collectively and individually to help these entrepreneurs. In my
1: own sort of reflect on my own experience, you know, I started angel investing a truly a little bit and then certainly kind of pre NFX a size a fair amount of angel investing. And I think the what I learned through that process of my of investing my own money was I think at the time, because I was an operator, I overemphasized the idea and underemphasized execution. And so, you know, I meet a founder and like, this is a brilliant idea. And then, you know, you spend time with them and just it's just a little bit harder for them to execute on that idea. And I think that's I've shifted that balance. So, like, yes, the idea is important, but execution is critical. And that's something that, you know, investors are really, you know, you can shape around the edges and recommend people and so forth. But it fundamentally comes down to the founding team about their ability to execute. And so that was a learning for me through th- through that process. You know, some of my early-age investments, I'd sit down with founders and I'd say, you know, the way that we solved this problem was, um, a trulia was the following. Not only is that unhelpful, that's probably really dangerous thing to do. And so I've really, you know, shifted kind of my thinking. It's like, the way that I would think about solving this problem or the frameworks that you should consider are the following. And if you read any of the content on NFX, then you'll see that there, that the, we've tried to abstract the kind of like the actions into the principles or the frameworks or the, the ideas to help you to kind of shape shape the construct. Because you recognize that every breakthrough company does break some rules along the way and 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 some sort of common wisdom we try and sort of abstract not what to do but just how to think about what to do and and that really does bring deliver some some breakthrough concepts in the other thing just as a you know i i look on my own experience and i think i would actually be a less good investor have if i'd sold truly with say a 100 people but having gone through that kind of journey of over a thousand people in the organization you end up Moving away from the sort of like tactical kind of like, you know, in the weeds day to day execution, you, you you know, by necessity, you have to kind of abstract yourself into a high level kind of pers- perspective. And the job of a scale CEO is to is to think about a, a bunch of things from strategy to capital allocation to human resources and, and human capital investor relations. And so in, in many ways, that's, you know, the job of an investor really just to get out of the individual decision-making, but to think about how you allocate capital and, and who you allocate capital to. And so that, that, that was an easier transition for me as a scale CEO as a, compared to an earlier CEO. You touched on something implicitly there, and that is
0: the uh, notion of value-add. And you spoke about your experiences as a founder throughout the life cycle and how that helps you mentor and help the founders that you work with. And you've done a lot of things as a firm to continue to find ways to help your underlying portfolio companies, ranging from the construct of your team and as well as things like NFX Signal and NFX Guild. On the latter, it seems like that's a very much a community type of approach. And maybe speaking to things that the firm's ethos is built around, so can you speak a little bit about what NFX Guild is and why does that help your founders in a meaningful and differentiated way?
1: So NFX Guild is, I mean, really the, I guess the origins are that, and, and maybe take a step back, NFX, for those that don't know, is, is really a play on network effects. And so the entire thesis of the firm is investing in network effect businesses. And so You know, we take that really seriously, obviously, in the companies we invest in, but kind of the way that we act as a firm. And NFX Guild, really the name comes from the sort of pre-C fund accelerator that we ran. And we invested in something like 70 companies and tried to bring those founders together to help them to help each other. You know, this is something that we found just from our own experience, starting and running companies, is that the tribal knowledge that comes from operator to operator operator really at the kind of bleeding edge of things is often the most valuable and so spending in enabling or facilitating conversations with founders so we have you know a sort of private online forum where founders will share everything strict codes of confidentiality kpi sharing smaller group sessions bring in experts to discuss with companies but try to network everything that we do you know, the notion of, of value-add, we also think about how do we build networks within the services that we provide? Something that, that, you know, the more people that participate, the more value accrues to the participants in that ecosystem. So how can we make, you know, networks of, of people to help recruit? How can we make networks of business development to help companies to be successful? How can we make networks of follow-on capital um, for founders. So really taking that network effect to heart not only about the companies that we're investing in, but the firm that we're trying to build behind the scenes. Going back to what we touched on earlier in the
0: conversation around the type of firm and really thinking about yourselves as a franchise and a, and a company. If you look at the last 20 to 25 years of venture, maybe even beyond that, there have been very few innovations when it comes to institutional investors. And I think of you know, some exceptions, YC, Andreessen. How have those things shaped your thinking when you guys were in the early days building the firm of what type of firm do we want to build? And are we providing something that's truly differentiated? And what were those early conversations like?
1: It's interesting. We've obviously studied the industry for you know, really since the kind of 90s, James, I coincidentally, also worked at Battery Ventures in the 90s. And so, and, I, and I, you know, I characterized the, the 90s, you know, and I'll, I'll bring it forward to today. It's the 90s was really about team and brand. A great team, choosing great companies, build a brand. And it was, you know, a fairly sort of small scale, lacking, I guess, institutional advantages, you think, in a startup. And then over those years, things have evolved, right? We've added things like community, you know, sort of bringing together founders. You've added services and platform. You've added content to amplify the brand and give advice. And then I think today, over the last couple of years, one thing that we've been really investing is building software. We think that just in the same way that software is transforming every single industry, it will also transform venture capital as well. And so we're really, you know, thinking about that from the grassroots. How do we use software to improve the way that we do things? We, we don't do automated investing or anything like that, but we do think that we want to have a foundation and and kind of a, a decision matrix around software and and use that to, to augment everything that we do. Really, that was, you know, the the kind of thesis behind the firm at the beginning. And, and then, you know, following what we love, which is being really helpful to founders and doing it at the earliest stage, you know, which is what we love doing. And if we're happy doing it, then I think we're going to be successful. I really like that
0: answer of, you know, how the, the venture industry has evolved. And certainly it's something that I focused on heavily over the last 12 years, looking at, you know, what used to be a very monolithic industry where funds effectively looked the same or the firms effectively look the same and now deeply fragmented, decentralized, specialized with these different value advantages emerging. And you brought up software, and we are seeing more funds use software to, you know, serve one component of what they do, whether it's value add or sourcing, or helping portfolio companies identify, you know, opportunities to sell into potential customers or just work with one another. But when you think about software, where does software play right now as you've built out NFX? Is it in the value add? Is it in the sourcing? I know you built out NFX Signal. Tell us a little bit about how you think about software and in the scope of your actual business
1: and where it really adds the most value or where you think it can add the most value. We think about software really in a, a couple of different buckets. There's sort of internal software, which is, you know, either kind of just available to the founders you know, where we have a platform that, that helps them to collaborate or just in amongst the investment professionals. And then we have external software really to help founders to do what they do better. And so maybe maybe touch on a few of that. So we have, we've built our own sort of proprietary CRM that helps us to collaborate and make decisions much faster. And I guess this came into its own really, I guess about 10 months ago. So we launched a program called NFX Fast, which was really a, a platform in deep COVID to help founders are looking to raise money. And we kind of created sort of a, a few different tiers and opened it up literally to everyone in the world to, to apply and to submit information in a form that we built from the called the Company Brief. And in a space of a few weeks, we literally got thousands and thousands and thousands of people approach us for early stage investment, typically, you know, leading their seed round. And the only way we could have done that is if we had built this proprietary software platform. And, and that enabled us to kind of take in these deals, evaluate these deals, route them to the right partner and team and, and kind of give them a transparent service. And we responded to every single one of them, I think, within a week which was a kind of a Herculean task with a small team um, powered by software. So that that was one thing that we do. And we're going to, you know, deeply expand on that platform. We have, you know, about a dozen people on the product team building these tools. And then the other piece is building, we, we launched a service called Signal, which is at signal.nfx.com. And, you know, this is really a platform for us to help founders connect with investors. So we have you know, lists of kind of good seed investors focus on PropTech or we have good, you know, here, here's a list of VCs that invest in minority founders. These are a whole list of different kind of sections and stages and seven, eight thousand different um, investors on the platform. And so it's a private platform just to can enable con- to founders to connect with those investors. And I guess we did it for a couple of reasons. One is just this sort of standing belief that software is going to transform the world of, of VC. And this is a service that, that we can provide. Two is that we end up investing in less than 0.5% of the founders that we meet. And so we want to build tools that we can help the other Ninety-nine point five percent of people that we they connect with us, and then three is that we built this tool initially for our portfolio, and then we got so much demand from other people outside of it. So, so we open it up to to everyone, and it's a network. It's a it's a marketplace, and so we wanted to enable that and open it up. And so it's it's a little it's a community project. It's free. It's something that we do that we think can kind of really help founders out there in a way that we can't help them directly.
0: I'm curious because, as I hear you talk, one of the central themes of the construction of the firm is highly around this ethos of community. You know, using software, creating great content for people to um, be able to run their businesses more effectively. All of that speaks to managing at scale because, you know, you know, with software, it's one of the few things in the world get, that can scale almost infinitely, if not infinitely. How does that play into your own portfolio construction, given that, you know, the challenge that a lot of firms have as they get bigger and bigger is how do you manage the number of board seats? How do you manage the number of companies? And as you grow AUM, there's definitely this belief that, you know, venture doesn't scale. Were all those things put in place intentionally to allow you to scale more efficiently? Or how do you think about all of those things as it relates to the way you build your portfolio?
1: It's definitely interesting. I think the venture can scale in certain vectors. We find that one of the biggest constraints is time. And I, you know, certainly the software that we do helps us to be more efficient in the way that we run things. And we've we've really invested heavily in it. The partners don't take any salary. All that salary goes into all the management fee goes into building a big team. So something like thirty people for a seed fund, which is I think probably. One of the largest headcounts and so these are software engineers these are you know hr finance folks helping kind of you know run the firm but also kind of help the portfolio uh company as well you know there is this sort of spirit of efficiency in here where you know we can you know help to do things at scale you know i think there's but there's no substitute for you know the 10 pm call with the ceo who is going into a meeting the next day and just needs some critical advice. And so that that's something that we absolutely continue to spend our time doing. For better for worse, COVID has, has actually made things enormously efficient in a way that I don't think we kind of realize. So board meetings don't, are not about kind of a trip to New York and a, and a day and, and, a, and a night. They're a two to three hour um, Zoom conversation. And, you know, I think the sort of capacity for investors and manage relationships has increased. And similarly, kind of meetings with founders, there's like, there's a large, large number of of, um, conversations, you know, if not exclusively happen over Zoom these days. And so I think the, those kind of norms have been uh, enabled us to scale. And we've been, you know, that with a partner in Israel and, Two in the US, three in the US now. It's been we've kind of always done this sort of digital first remote environment. So it's been pretty easy for us to transition that environment. So we're managing the scaling just fine, but you know, we'll continue to add more people to the team to help us to make more investments. And you know, that's it's actually working fine so far.
0: How does that play into the way you build the portfolio, number of companies, initial checks, how you reserve does this allow you to invest in more companies per fund than a traditional, let's
1: say, seed and series A fund? The focus for NFX has been primarily to to lead what we call an institutional seed round. You know, we'll take some sort of board commitment, whether it's a board seat or board observer or, or just act like a board a board member would really just to engage with founders on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. You know, the typical ownership... Uh, you know, is around 15%. Um, you know, that's the way that we've been working. That's working great. And, and as more investors, you know, come onto the cap table, then we can be more efficient in terms of, you know, founders often want to speak to us less frequently. And so we kind of we reduce some of the frequency of engagement and we've kind of formalized some of the border, board relationships. And so as we've evolved, you know, that the fun one was, was 150 million fund two was 275 million you know that kind of transition has been that we have increased the number of companies in the portfolio but also increased the, the dollars in each company as well step we firmly love we really love this institutional seed phase really being typically the first institutional investor kind of meaningful ownership and meaningful commitment to the company and that's you know that's where we're, we're going to stay you know, from a, to your question around follow-on, typically we're reserving about half the fund for follow-on investments in in the company, and so that's that's been the math. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the fund size, and you
0: mentioned going from one hundred and fifty to two hundred and seventy-five. Presumably, there were a lot of considerations that went into that increase. Most people would associate seed funds with being sub one hundred and twenty-five million dollars. And as you get higher than that, taking on a personality that's more series A traditional funds, what were the main considerations and take us inside baseball a little bit of the conversations you and the partners had in deciding to go from 150 to 275?
1: We should take a step back because I think if you look at the venture ecosystem of the last decade, you've seen a level of institutionalization at every stage, which has just been terrific we have seen how the friends and family round, which was just to get going, has kind of is now transitioned to solo GPs, institutional angel investors, really amazing practitioners who are kind of helping companies at the early stage. You know, the wealth creation from the companies has enabled them to to kind of invest. So it's not your uncle who doesn't know anything about building tech companies it's you know it's truly domain experts and that's terrific but you've also seen you know seed as being a kind of like kind of awkward term to being a real asset class or a real stage in the in the company's formation you're seeing very sizable seed rounds and so you know the notion of just seed has just changed dramatically over the last couple of years and so we saw that coming just a few years ago and really wanted to get behind it and so uh, helping companies array these institutional seed rounds and so and getting meaningful ownership but also providing meaningful commitment was was critical to that you know I think that may stabilize at some point you've just been this big increase in um, in the size of seed rounds I'm sure there's a bunch of data that out there you know we think that's going to stabilize f- for a while. And so in terms of the considerations, I think it's really just balancing the ownership requirements to sort of make the fun math work with the founders concerns around dilution at the early stage. You know, combining that with the portfolio size to give us, you know, enough companies in product market fit phase. There's a lot of unknowns about it. So we kind of want to have a kind of a a sizable portfolio size it's it worked out and so and then and then investing over kind of two three years it's been extremely well received by RLPs, and we feel really good about the the feedback from founders which is ultimately the most important thing
0: i completely agree with the institutionalization of the the seed market the average and there is data great data around this in terms of the uh, the growing size of you know seed rounds today's pre-seed round you know for example is the size of what we would have considered post-seed maybe eight years ago. And so things have, you know, evolved and shifted. And we, even within the seed market, we've seen fragmentation. You mentioned some of the small managers that are raising 10 to 15 uh, solo practitioners, all the way to the very institutional folks like yourself. As you look at the entire marketplace as it's evolved in, you know, really highly evolved, I guess, in the last five to 10 years, where do you see yourself fit in? Like where does NFX fit in into the venture ecosystem?
1: What we love to do is to really be that first institutional partner to founders as they as they build their business. That's where our passion is and that's where I kind of, we think we can be uniquely capable. And so, you know, we love to work with traditional Series A firms to kind of, to help them on the kind of next leg of the journey, to work with them on the next leg of the journey. And so that, so staying in that kind of first institutional stage is really a focus for us. And then, you know, the, the exciting stuff for us is moving into adjacent areas, not kind of upstream or downstream, but adjacent areas in terms of things like um, bio. We brought on a terrific um, team at Omri Drury venture partner, Emily Leprost, who's exceptional CEO, bio CEO, as an advisor. And so the incredible PhDs referred some terrific companies to us over the years that we've invested in, has joined us to kind of help us to to lead the the bio side of things, which we think is kind of fascinating. And I think that's that's been an area we've been interested in as a, a partnership, but you know, we haven't fully staffed until recently. And clearly COVID has just has brought this the transformation in kind of healthcare and bio to the forefront. And we see the next 10 years. An incredible amount of innovation, um, not driven by not just driven by the technological advances um, and efficiency advances, but also I think the governments and regulation are a little bit more open today than they they have been, not all the way, but a little bit more open today. So that's that's an area where we're excited about. And then we Morgan Bella joined us last year. Morgan's just a, a force of nature, so she joined us, and she's she's a journalist, but she also was at Facebook and one of the co-creators of, I don't know what the name is today, but Libra Novi, that the essentially the the blockchain initiatives and the crypto initiatives at Facebook, and she's been spent the last four years in that industry, and that again is a, it's a an a, you know incredible industry that we're deeply deeply immersed in, and Morgan is truly a world expert, you know, and there's going to be a, you know we have obviously in t- deep internal domain expertise, but we'll also be you know, expanding in in other areas as well. So staying in that in that lane is the the primary focus for us. The other stuff, maybe you know, we we there may be some geographical. Gigi is a center of the ecosystem in Israel. Um, we're very focused in the U.S. We have been doing a little bit in Latin America, but you know, just for now, we're focused on U.S. companies primarily. But you know, as we've all seen, there's been this sort of rapid globalization or decentralization of the venture ecosystem.
0: Yeah, it's very clear that the innovation economy is flattening and dispersing. And certainly that provides interesting opportunities for folks like yourself to increase your aperture of where you invest and how you invest. And going to team for a second, you brought up Morgan and adding so many team members, and I didn't realize the partners weren't taking salary, but as you think about adding People to the NFX platform. Are there a set of guiding principles that you look for, and how do you then ensure that the people you
1: bring on fit the ethos you're trying to build? I think it has to start with this founder mentality, and I, you know, it's you know the ability to be inspired, um, but also inspire, and having that kind of c- creation and creativity to support entrepreneurs. Now, I think the you know, the team is is full of practitioners and that kind of central ethos, which we we think is, you know, it's not unique to founders themselves, but is just prevalent within founders. You know, that extends really just to, to be a, a source of help and advice and, and really, you know, focus on creating as much value as possible in the organization, you know, not, not, not just capturing value, but creating value creating as much value as possible is is absolutely critical that's really the, the fundamental piece obviously we're looking for kind of grit and perseverance and network and and everything else but you know as we look for people to expand and and you know and join us it's that founder first mentality and the unique ability to kind of help the founders along the journey is really what we look for and congratulations on, on building such
0: a great team in a short amount of time. I know it's still in the early days, but I've been incredibly impressed with everything you've done in, in the market, the founders you've invested in, and in, in the, uh, the platform you've created. I, I want to end with our final segment, which is our heat check segment, which really has three questions that I'll ask you in rapid succession. The first one, I'm, I'm really curious on what is the most counterintuitive or unique finding you've learned
1: as a venture investor over in the last five years? It is constantly astounding to me, the power of the network effects. I you know this is kind of obvious and the, and the kind of nature of our name, but it is astounding we look at the public companies, whether it's DoorDash or whether it's Airbnb and these other companies, and just seeing ourselves, network effects are incredibly powerful and, and, and constantly surprising to me.
0: I know it's very, very early in your investing career as being part of a firm. Although I know you've angel invested as well, do you have an anti portfolio or any companies that you've missed over time? And if so, who are they? What did you
1: learn from those misses? The CFO at Trulia, he was the first investor and is now the chairman of Lyft. And we spent a lot of time together when he was I like, invested in this Lyft company, you know, the pink moustaches. And you know, I could have join him in that round um but my my focus was elsewhere and and then Eric Wu at Open Door he used to work for me at, at Truly and he left and started Open Door and both of them fit into this mold of like it's a really really crazy idea that might just work and that's the and that's what I look for every day like you know and that's where I've made you know these crazy ideas and then like squint that might just work And um, kudos (laughs) to both of them, um, because they're crazy ideas that absolutely did work. Uh, It
0: never ceases to surprise me how many successful companies have come out from ideas that at first kind of thought they were crazy, and you said, hey, the chances of them working are actually really low. And lo and behold, they do. Final question I have is, you had so many great investors when you ran Trulia. Uh, You've worked with VCs on both sides of the table. What do you believe to be the most important characteristics of a good investor?
1: The ability to learn and empathy. You know, this the pace of change and kind of the ability to learn, but also to unlearn um, things because every, every startup does break a convention or a rule in, in some way. And um, empathy. I think this is like, this is however kind of digital and however automated and software this this world in is it's really a, an industry about people people you work with people you work for um and so i think that empathy piece is kind of critical to help to, to be a partner to founders and to be a partner to your other gps to help them in this journey can i ask a bonus question here
0: just because you said something that had sparked something in my mind but the empathy piece i i do find that you know folks that have joined from the operating side and, and then also started firms and have gone through the fundraising and building as having quite a bit of empathy for the founders they work for. But the learning aspect of being a continuous learner, continually challenging your own biases, I find that in some cases, people are very systematized in how they do that. They're very disciplined of either being reflective, taking time off, you know, reading, doing things that really actually challenge their own beliefs. Is there anything that you do that allows you to be this true continuous learner?
1: This is, I find the value of a partnership. You know, it's funny, well, I was just chatting with um Giggy the other day, like, you know, I'm I'm British and the British are kind of like famously the sort of, they never say what's on their mind and they are incredibly unconfrontational. And then, and Giggy will say absolutely what's on his mind. You know, if he's wrong, he'll say, oh, I was totally wrong about that. Um, And I think this is the the value of having candid conversations around partners to help to kind of drill in on decisions. And that from the beginning, we've been just incredibly sort of transparent and it's the partners that make us better. And then having Eddie Morgan last year has just been phenomenal. She's just brought different perspectives and kind of continuously raising the bar and, you know, the insight and experience. So that, that I think the, you know, those partner conversations are actually the real magic to kind of, to learn and learn from, my partners every single day.
0: And in your case, there's this juxtaposition of personalities and backgrounds, which really enable that, you know, type of continuous learning. So it it's very helpful to hear that. And, and Pete, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you. Thanks for being on the show. Congrats on the success thus far and look forward to seeing uh, what
1: you build in the future. Thanks, Samir. Really good to be here. Great chance to you as well.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Pete and NFX, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and review, and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.